2: Horny for Horror. I mean, there's there, you're not gonna get a better podcast title than that. It kind of tells you everything right there, right? Horny for Horror is a podcast dedicated to the greatest film genre of all time. Horror. The horror! Hosted by three legit horror heads: Adam McCabe, Betsy Sidaro, and Mono. It features interviews, ghost stories, spooky debates, special shocker episodes, and anything else fans of horror would want to hear. Plus, you will hear the dulcet tones of guests like Lauren Lapkus, Matt Besser, Paul Rusk, Mary Holland, John Gabris, and more. Talking all things horror. Listen to new bonus episodes of Horny for Horror, plus the show's entire archive, completely ad-free. Now on Stitcher Premium for more information go to stitcher.com slash horny for horror. From the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library in the wilds of Connecticut, this is Obscure, the podcast in which I read Jude the Obscure out loud and comment on it as I go. I am your host, your friend, your reader, your ear lover, your companion, Michael Ian Black, as we... Sally Forth, on this journey. And today in the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library, a real traditional setting with an unexpected twist. What could the twist be? I'll tell you in a second. First of all, I've got my shitty little rat dog, Jack-Jack, beside me here on the reading throne. And Jack-Jack has an annoying habit where if he comes up to you, he takes his right paw and kind of, uh, well, he paws you with it. And he's got these, you know, fingernails and they scrape along your forearm as he craves your attention. So he paws at you looking for you to uh, return the affection. And it's a problem because if you feel no affection for him, as I do not, then you are left with uh, a dog looking at you expectantly waiting for some form of love. That love is rarely forthcoming from me. So in that way, he's a lot like Jude just pawing, at the mysterious forces arrayed before him, hoping for some love. And like in Jude, he gets little in return. Also, by my side, a steaming hot cup of afternoon English breakfast tea. Here's the twist. Normally, when I drink black tea, I put a little splash of milk in it. Just a little splash of milk. Well, guess what, friends? We are out of milk here in the wilds of Connecticut. Now, I could certainly go round back and milk one of my dairy cows. But it was so pressing to me that I record this episode that I have foregone the creamy texture of milk in my English breakfast tea. And so instead, we'll raw dog it, uh, which is to say I will have nothing in my tea at all. I will drink it black. And to my right side is my actual raw dog, Jack Jack. And to satisfy his craving for affection and warmth, I have covered him in my little Afghan, my little Jill Schwartz Memorial Afghan, previously described in another episode. And we're at a kind of at a a scintillating crossroads here for Jude because he has been pining for his cousin Sue Bridehead. He has been following her around like a goddamn psychopath. He has been stalking her. He knows her or feels that he does, but he has yet to approach her. And last episode, we found out that Sue Bridehead, although she does not know Jude, knows something of his yearnings. She went and bought some naked statues. She hid them in her room. Her landlord came in and said, what are those? She, she lied about what they were. And here we are. We're, we're at a little inflection point between Jude and Sue Bridehead. The last thing that happened was he acknowledged to himself that although he had sworn that he would not approach her he was obliged to own to himself that his conscience was likely to be the loser in this battle. To be sure, she was almost an ideality to him still. Well, right. That's what I was saying. He's objectifying her. She's an ideality. She's just this thing. She's, she herself is, is one of those statues to him, perfect in its carving, but he has no idea really what the flesh is. And when I say the flesh, I mean her inner self, the inner flesh, her organs and such, her veins. He doesn't know what her kidney would taste like. (laughs) Uh. Perhaps to know her would be to cure himself of this unexpected and unauthorized passion. A voice whispered that though he desired to know her, he did not desire to be cured. Well, this is an interesting thing that Hardy is saying. He's saying when you when you sort of uh, idealize somebody, the thing to do if you want to get over it is to actually get to know them, <laughs> right? Well, that makes perfect sense. Because when you get to know somebody and you see that they're actually just a human being, just like you're a human being, the dream of them dissipates and you're left with the reality of a person just like you. And now there's a danger, of course, which I suspect this is a trap judes going to walk into because when you first meet somebody you can find them even more enchanting than the dream everything they say is hilarious every move that they make is sinuous every uh every poo that they take that they take has never smelled better there's no fragrance better than their poo you become enchanted with this person and in fact in a weird way you 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 they can become more idealized that's what love is, or the early flushes of love. So Jude saying, though he desired to know her, he did not desire to be cured. Well, yeah, he get, we, we understand that. He's hoping that he falls in love with her. He's hoping that when he meets her, all of that charm that he has put onto her unknowingly, she will then inhabit. And we know that Jude can do this. He did this with Arabella. He made her into something that she was not, but he has not learned his lesson. There was not the least doubt from... His own orthodox point of view, the situation was growing immoral. Right. For Sue, to be the loved one of a man who was licensed by the laws of his country to love Arabella and none other unto his life's end was a pretty bad second beginning when the man was bent on such a course as Jude proposed. This conviction was so real with him that one day, when as was frequent, he was at work in a neighboring village church alone. He felt it to be his duty to pray against his weakness. But much as he wished to be an exemplar in these things, he could not get on. It was quite impossible, he found, to be asked to be delivered from temptation when your heart's desire was to be tempted unto 70 times 7. So he excused himself. After all, he said, it is not altogether in ertilepsy, er eretola- <sighs> Some, ugh, ugh, now i got to look up a word. And sometimes these words aren't even easily looked up. Er- aerotilepsy. Oh, isn't that funny? It's a term first used by English author Thomas Hardy in his 1895 Jude the Obscure to describe a passionate sensual desire and longing which is more violent and urgently felt than aerotomania. Uh, which is a delusional disorder. Paranoid condition that is characterized by an individual's delusions of another person being infatuated with him or her, which is what I think I sometimes have. I think I have a combination of that, of thinking that people like me, but then simultaneously thinking everybody hates me. I don't know what that's called. But so this is a made up word that Thomas Hardy is using here. All right. I mean, who does he think he is? Shakespeare? Shakespeare? Hey, Shakespeare, quit making up words here, all right? We're trying to read your dumb book. After all, he said, it is not altogether in erotolepsy that is the matter with me. And see, what's dumb is that he's got Jude making up this word. You know, Jude, for all his intellectual curiosity, he's he's a hidebound creature. He's not in the habit of making up words. I don't like that Thomas Hardy did that. Hey, Shakespeare, hey, Shakespeare what do you think you're betting anybody else making up words it is not altogether in aerotilepsy that is the matter with me as at that first time i can see that she is exceptionally bright and it is partly a wish for intellectual sympathy and a craving for loving kindness in my solitude thus he went on adoring her fearing to realize that it was human perversity. For whatever Sue's virtues, talents, or ecclesiastical saturation, it was certain that those items were not at all the cause of his affection for her. Right. He's horny for her. You can just say that, Tom. Hey, Shakespeare, just say he's horny for her. All right? What is it? What is this with all your SAT words? Just say he's got a boner for her. On an afternoon at this time, a young girl entered the stonemason's yard with some hesitation and lifting her skirts to avoid dragging them in the white dust, crossed towards the office. That's a nice girl, said one of the men known as Uncle Joe. Who is she? Asked another. I don't know. I've seen her about here and there. Why, yes. <laughs> I, like, I like just blatant exposition and this is what we're about to get. I don't know. <laughs> who is she? He says, I don't know. I've seen her about here and there. Why, yes, she's the daughter of that clever chap, Bridehead, who did all the wrought iron work at St. Silas's 10 years ago and went away to London afterwards. I don't know what he's doing now. Not much, I fancy, as he's come back here. So I don't I don't know who, he, who she is. I just know everything about her family. Meanwhile, the young woman had knocked at the office door and asked if Mr. Jude Fowley was at work in the yard. It so happened that Jude had gone out somewhere or other that afternoon, which information she received with a look of disappointment, and went away immediately. When Jude returned, they told him and described her, whereupon he exclaimed, why, that's my cousin Sue. Well, Can you imagine, after all this time, he's been avoiding her, and then she comes looking for him. I mean, we're we're about to have a 1930s comedy here. This is, this is getting madcap. I like when things get madcap. I'm going to take a sip of tea. We'll be back in a minute on Obscure.
0: Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you.
1: Get 80% off your
2: impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B Y T dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Tired of the late night shows that do nothing but political jokes? Then check out Man of the People with Pat Tomasulo, a different kind of comedy show. Stream it to any device Saturday nights at 11 East, 10 Central at WGNTV.com slash live. You can also find Man of the People on YouTube at Man of the People TV. Our bar believes in the power of of transparency. That's why they list all their ingredients right on the front of the packaging. RX Bar also believes in using real whole ingredients like egg whites for protein, dates to bind, nuts for texture, and other delicious ingredients like unsweetened chocolate and real fruit. RX Bar has plenty of flavors for adults like peanut butter, chocolate coconut, mixed berry, but they also have a kid line with the same whole food ingredients as RX bar just a little smaller, a little softer, and more kid-friendly. The kid bars come in six flavors, like uh, chocolate chip and PB&J, so parents won't have to compromise to provide a snack that tastes delish and fits their nutrition expectations. Uh, Both the adult and kid bars are gluten-free, dairy-free, no artificial flavors or preservatives. They make a perfect after-school snack or maybe a delicious lunchbox add-in. I have had several of these RX bars. I like them, one of the things that I don't like about bars, you know, kind of protein bars in general is when you read the ingredients, you'll see just like there's like a hundred ingredients in them and you always feel like, Oh, am I actually eating something healthy or am I just eating? some sort of, uh, uh, candy that's been repackaged to lie to me that it's healthy. That's why I like RX bar because exactly what they said at the top, like it tells you exactly what's in it, dates, nuts, egg whites. And you're like, I like all that stuff. And it all tastes good when it's all sort of smooshed together and given a little flavor. It's good. RX Bar is offering you an exclusive pack of six adult bars and four kid bars so the whole family can enjoy. For 25% off your first order, visit rxbar.com slash obscure and enter promo code obscure at checkout. We're back with the most madcap of all podcasts, Obscure, the one where I read Victorian literature out loud. It's mad, mad I say. Jude has just discovered that after all of his avoiding that cousin that he's in love with, well, wouldn't you know it? She's been trying to find him. Let us find out what happens next. He looked along the street after her, but she was out of sight. He had no longer any thought of a conscientious avoidance of her. No, why would he? I mean she came looking for him. Now it now now he would be rude if he did not look for her in return. Uh I, I suspect there's gonna be a lot of doors opening and closing. Uh they're gonna be running across the stage. I mean it's a farce, it's a farce, I tell you, it's a madcap farce. And he resolved to call upon her that very evening. And when he reached his lodging, he found a note from her. I told you there were going to be doors opening and closing. A first note, one of those documents which, simple and commonplace in themselves, are seen retrospectively to have been pregnant with impassioned consequences. The very unconsciousness of a looming drama, which is shown in such innocent first epistles from women to men or vice versa, makes them, when such a drama follows, as they are read over by the purple or lurid light of it, all the more impressive, solemn, and in cases, terrible. Now, there's a little foreshadowing. Sue's was of the most artless and natural kind. She addressed him as her dear cousin Jude, said she had only just learnt by the merest accident that he was living in Christminster, and reproached him with not letting her know. They might have had such nice times together, she said, for she was thrown much upon herself and had hardly any congenial friend. But now there was every probability of her soon going away so that the chance of companionship would be lost perhaps forever. Well, now there's a wrinkle, isn't there? Sue's going somewhere. Where's she going? We don't know. I mean, this is going to be heartbreaking for Jude. After all of this pining and whatnot, Sue comes to him. Sue tells him, She's going to be leaving soon. And for shame, he did not call upon her and all the nice times they might have had together. A cold sweat overspread Jude at the news that she was going away. That was a contingency he had never thought of, and it spurred him to write all the more quickly to her. He would meet her that very evening, he said, one hour from the time of writing at the cross in the pavement, which marked the spot of the martyrdoms. Well, we know who the martyr is in this book, don't we? I mean, it rhymes with rude jolly. It's Jude folly. I mean, everything's getting madcap, right? Uh, oh, I missed you and you missed me and you came to my house and I wasn't there. Well, let's meet at the certain place at the certain time you're going away where well, there's no time to waste. You can almost hear the uh, the music playing, the chase music, as they're getting ready to have this comedy of errors. Although I think we both know it's going to be a tragedy. When he had dispatched the note by a boy, he regretted that in his hurry, he should have suggested to her to meet him out of doors when he might have said he would call upon her. It was, in fact, the country custom to meet thus, and nothing else had occurred to him. Arabella had been met in the same way, unfortunately, and it might not seem respectable to a dear girl like Sue. However, it could not be helped now, and he moved towards the point a few minutes before the hour, under the glimmer of the newly lighted lamps." The broad street was silent and almost deserted, although it was not late. He saw a figure on the other side, which turned out to be hers. And they both converged towards the cross mark at the same moment. Before either had reached it, she called out to him. I am not going to meet you just there for the first time in my life. Come further on. The voice, though positive and silvery, had been tremulous. They walked on in parallel lines, and, waiting her pleasure, Jude watched till she showed signs of closing in, when he did likewise, the place being where the carrier's carts stood in the daytime, though there was none on the spot then. "'I am sorry that I asked you to meet me and didn't call,' began Jude with the bashfulness of a lover, but I thought it would save time if we were going to walk." Oh, I don't mind that, she said, with the freedom of a friend. I have really no place to ask anybody into. What I meant was that the place you chose was so horrid. I suppose I ought not to say horrid. I mean gloomy and inauspicious in its associations. But isn't it funny to begin like this when I don't know you yet? She looked him up and down curiously, though Jude did not look much at her. You seem to know me more than I know you, she added. Yes, I have seen you now and then liar. You've been stalking her. I mean, I get it. He's not going to say I've been stalking you, but she seems very nice. <laughs> right? She really does seem very nice. Um, none of the coarseness of Arabella and she speaks well and she has good carriage and she has a little bit of a sense of humor and modesty. I mean, I already like Sue Bridehead very much. And you know she's got a little bit of the devil in her, don't we? We know she's got a little bit, just a little bit of old uh, 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 Beelzebub sparking up in her soul, don't we? We know that. Yes, I have seen you now and then. And you knew who I was and didn't speak. And now I am going away. Yes, that's unfortunate. I have hardly any other friend. I have indeed one very old friend here somewhere, but I don't quite like to call on him just yet. I wonder if you know anything of him, Mr. Phillotson, a parson somewhere about the county I think he is. No, I only know of one Mr. Phillotson. He lives a little way out in the country at Lumsden. He's a village schoolmaster. Ah, I wonder if he's the same. Surely it is impossible, only a schoolmaster still. Do you know his Christian name? Is it Richard? Yes, it is. I've directed books to him, though I've never seen him. Then he couldn't do it. Jude's countenance fell. For how could he succeed in an enterprise wherein the great Phillotson had failed? So, this is uh, a little bit of a revelation to Jude. And even I, suspicious reader that I am, had assumed likewise that Phillotson had gone on to college and Phillotson had done great things and Phillotson had graduated and Phillotson was even then. Probably doing something involving Vespers. I don't know what Vespers are. I think they're an Italian motorbike. But you know what I'm saying. This calls to mind an earlier episode of Obscure. Um, when I talked about how there was a, a guy from my high school named Kurt. Who had gone off to the Great White Way to become a Broadway star. And, and had never been heard from again. Now, I have subsequently looked up Kurt. Uh, and discovered that he has, in fact, had a small career in theater and film. He is not utterly without success. But I'm sure, like me, he has not had the kind of success that he had hoped for. And like Jude, I had thought, well, if Kurt can't make it, Kurt, who was the lead in The Music Man, and by the way, in Paint Your Wagon, then what hope is there for me? And so even Phillotson. Even blessed sainted Phillotson has fallen into his own life of obscurity. So, what can any of us do? The question he doesn't ask, which is maybe the only pertinent question, is do you know if he's happy? Because happiness in this book does not seem to be the goal, particularly. <laughs> I mean, maybe they just accept that happiness itself is impossible, that the best one can hope for is a kind of quiet contentedness. And maybe they're the same thing. I don't know. But Phillotson had failed. He would have had a day of despair if the news had not arrived during his sweet Sue's presence. But even at this moment, he had visions of how Phillotson's failure in the Grand University scheme would depress him when she had gone. Are we going to take a walk? Suppose we go and call upon him, said Jude suddenly. It is not late. She agreed and they went along up a hill and through some prettily wooded country. Presently, the embattled tower and square turret of the church rose into the sky and then the schoolhouse. They inquired of a person in the street if Mr. Phillotson was likely to be at home and were informed that he was always at home. A knock brought him to the schoolhouse door with a candle in his hand, and a look of inquiry on his face, which had grown thin and careworn since Jude last set eyes on him. That after all these years, the meeting with Mr. Phillotson should be of this homely complexion destroyed at one stroke the halo, which had surrounded the schoolmaster's figure in Jude's imagination ever since their parting. It created in him at the same time a sympathy with Phillotson as an obviously much chastened and disappointed man. Jude told him his name and said he had come to see him as an old friend who had been kind to him in his youthful days. (laughs) I just read the next line and it made me a little sad, but... (laughs) everything in this book makes me a little sad. And generally, if you hear me laughing, it's because something sad has happened and I do not have the maturity to express it in the correct way. So the schoolmaster, so it it goes, I don't remember you in the least, (laughs) said the schoolmaster thoughtfully. You were one of my pupils, you say? Yes, no doubt, but they number so many thousands by this time of my life and have naturally changed so much that I remember ver- very few, except the quite recent ones. It was out at Marygreen, said Jude, wishing he had not come. <laughs> yes, I was there a short time, and this is an old pupil too? No, that's my cousin. I wrote to you for some grammars, if you recollect. And you sent them. Ah, yes, I do dimly recall that incident. I'm making him sound utterly ancient. I don't mean to, but it sounds like, you know, it's been 20 years and people didn't live very long in those days. So he's probably 40. So he's basically on death's door, right? I do wonder if the lesson here is is uh, that you shouldn't try to meet your heroes. I mean, we've heard that oft-repeated phrase, don't meet your heroes. You know, when people meet me, I'm always a disappointment. And I am a lot of people's heroes. My friend Nell Scoville, more of an optimist though, and I'm going to see what she thinks about Jude's situation. Hello, Nell Scoville. Welcome back to Obscure. So, what happened is when he was a boy, he idolized his school teacher, just a little, a wee little lad. And then the the school teacher went away. And then, years later, as an adult, he remakes the acquaintance of his school teacher, this man that he's idolized. And the school teacher has no memory of him whatsoever, of course. Yeah. But sometimes I think that, that
1: it, it, There's a great balance Like there are people you think about Never think about you But then I wonder, is there someone thinking about me Who I don't think
2: about at all <laughs> I'm sure
1: Right? So it yeah. all balances out
2: Okay. Have you ever Either met somebody As an adult that you knew as a kid And they were very different Or just met one of your heroes and And how that went
1: yeah, you know, I, I once wrote a line. I met my hero today. He was a pretty nice guy.
2: <laughs> <laughs> that seems right. And,
1: but I do remember I was friends with um, an old-time movie director who has since passed away. He was quite a bit older, and he actually knew Dorothy Parker.
0: Oh, wow. And
1: when he told me that, I was like, what was she like? And he said, well, it's just terrible what booze did to her. Mm. And I that always stuck in my head, like, oh, maybe you don't want to meet. You know, whenever they say, like, who would you have lunch with? And you know, normally I would say Dorothy Parker, but I'm like, ah, oh, she would have one martini, it
2: would be a ruin. <laughs> well, I guess. I mean, you could have a dry lunch with Dorothy Parker, but maybe her wit wasn't quite so sparkling when she was probably not. sober. It was probably right. You probably had to get her just in that sweet spot between yeah. between one chocolatini. And all the chocolatinis.
1: But also, I mean, we both know that most humorous people
2: who are professionally humorous can be very serious in real life. Yeah. Dour, miserable sons of bitches.
1: And the one I would say, the exception to that is Albert Brooks, Hmm. who is genuinely one of the most hilarious, thoughtful people uh, you could ever
2: meet. And plays a dour, miserable son of a bitch. Are you guys buddies?
1: We are a little bit.
2: That's nice. How did you first make his acquaintance?
1: So my son was at a camp just for one week in West L.A., during the summer and he came home and he started talking about this guy Jake who was hilarious a kid at camp I kept saying we'll find out you know where Jake lives get a phone number and uh the day before the end of camp he said to me oh I found out that Jake's father is a director his name is Alfred Brooks <laughs> <laughs> I went wait was it Albert Brooks and my son went oh yeah, yeah Albert mm-hmm. and so then the next day I went down
2: Jake,
1: <laughs> And the boys became really good friends and we became family friends, which was lovely.
2: That is lovely. The craziest part of that story to me is that uh, as a parent, that you would enjoy hanging out with your kids, friends, parents, which is not a thing that commonly happens.
1: Uh, I would agree with that statement. <laughs> To ask about an old school teacher, have you connected with any of your old school teachers on Facebook?
2: No, I've never even thought to. Because it never occurred to me, unlike Jude, that any of them would remember me. Like, it just never even occurred to me. It always just seemed like I'm just a face among many faces. And they, they of course they would not remember me. Have you? Uh,
1: I have. And it's, it's been really fun. Huh. My Spanish teacher, Chesney. Yeah.
2: What's her Mastigrain. last name? What's the name? Mcchesney. Oh yeah, that's that classic Spanish surname, Mcchesney. <laughs> <laughs> it was knit in Massachusetts. <laughs> what do you want, Senora Mcchesney? Um, yes. Yeah, an English teacher, but
1: I was one of five kids, and and so there was a greater chance
2: teachers would remember, right. the family, right. So they would remember the family name and then you were, I mean, I mean, and you probably had a special relationship, but I would guess with an English teacher, they probably liked you. Yeah, with a couple. Yeah, I never had that really. I never had like a teacher in public schooling that I felt like really took a shine to me beyond fourth grade. My fourth grade teacher, I think, did. And part of it was because I purposely just kept myself in the background because I was just so self-conscious and and shy and I didn't want that kind of attention. Do you remember teacher fourth grade teacher's name uh yes k diamond was her name ms diamond she was my first ms teacher oh and my mom and her actually did become friends because my mom was also a very vociferous ms i think that's what they had in common they were just i think ms diamond they were mizzy i think they were very Mizzy. uh my mom was also leslie i don't think ms diamond was leslie she was just <laughs> Mizzy. <Ms. laughs> In fact, I think I met her husband, but yeah, they, they, they got along, I think, because of, because of, uh, of they both liked me and they both liked feminism. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if she would remember me now. I have no idea. Maybe I'll look her up. That would be, yeah, I don't know.
1: Oh, teachers are just humans too.
2: Well, I in, had really great teachers. You're lucky. I mean, you're really lucky. That you had teachers who <laughs> know who you are. <laughs> I don't think anybody expected thing, anything of me because I don't think anybody expected anything of anybody in the town where I came from, just like Jude. Jude comes from this little town called Mary Green, and uh, nobody in Mary Green ever did anything. Nobody went on like American Idol or anything like that. They just kind of toiled. They were just toilers. And I think everybody, toilers? yeah, everyone was, ex- everyone was expected to toil. And, and where, where are you from? Uh, Hillsboro, New Jersey, which is uh, I would say was a step up from Mary Green in terms of people's expectations, but not that much more like you were kind of expected to end up selling pharmaceuticals, like being a drug rep. That's kind of what you were expected to be. <laughs> well, who's the,
1: who's the most famous person who went to your high school?
2: Me. That's how sad it is. <laughs> there was a, a guy a year ahead of me named Ricky Prohl, who became a two-time Super Bowl champion. And I remember that my very first girlfriend had a mad crush on Ricky Prohl because why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't yeah. you? Oddly, like he, he didn't seem to be like a huge star or anything when I went to high school with him. But then suddenly he was on an NFL team and winning Super Bowls.
1: Well, I have good news for you. Yeah. With probably not young, and then you
2: will be the most famous person. <laughs> well Nell thank you so much for taking the time and sharing your hero stories and uh...
1: um, it is my pleasure good luck
2: thank you I hope
1: you finish the book it seems like you will
2: now right oh yeah I'll finish it it'll be months and months from now because I you know it's a, it's a it's a it's basically half hour a week and I've got hundreds of pages left but Whatever. I got nothing I clearly have nothing else to do. Bye. Bye. That was writer and comedian Nell Scovall, a person whom teachers remember. We will get back to the very forgettable Jude in just a minute, but first, a quick break. Got a brand new podcast here on Earwolf called John Levinstein's Retirement Party. Maybe you are a fan of shows like uh, Arrested Development, Silicon Valley. Well, John Levinstein, writer, actor, producer—he's—he's—he's he's, he's worked on all those and many, many more, many more. In celebration of John's long career in show business, he shares personal stories from the writers' room, offers advice, rehashes old decisions, settles feuds and tells his friends he loves them, which is nice. We need more of that. John and his co-host, actress and writer, and incidentally, dear friend of mine, Mary Kobayashi, talk with people from all over the entertainment industry, like Karen Kilgareth from My Favorite Murder, Nick Kroll from The Kroll Show in Big Mouth, Jill Soloway from Transparent, David Harbour from Stranger Things, there's one episode where they try to write an episode of Franklin and Bash in real time with two rooms of writers who have never seen the show. I could have been on that episode because I have never seen Franklin and Bash, but I think my friend Camille was on it. John Levenstein's Retirement Party is a must-listen if you want to hear hilarious stories that have never been told about some of your favorite shows and how they were created. John Levenstein's Retirement Party is out now for free. Subscribe now in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. Back at Obscure, and we are in chapter four of part the second. Jude has just seen his hero, his teacher, Mr. Phillotson, And as Jude's luck would have it, Mr. Phillotson has no idea who he is. So uh, here's Jude. It was very kind of you to do it. And it was you who first started me on that course. On the morning you left Mary Green, when your goods were on the wagon you wished me goodbye and said your scheme was to be a university man and enter the church, that a degree was the necessary hallmark of one who wanted to do anything as a theologian or teacher. So now Jude is basically just rubbing his face in his own shit. He's basically saying, you told me, hey, bub, you told me that you were going to go to the university and you sent me on this course and turns out you couldn't even do it the old so-and-so. Like, there's really no reason for Jude to say this. Like, the guy doesn't remember him. Uh, it's fair. Just say, well, you know, you don't remember me, but you meant a lot to me, and we just thought we'd saunter on by and give you a hearty hello and be on our way. But no, Jude is rubbing his own, Phillotson's dreams uh, that have turned to shit in his face and saying, smell it, boy. I remember I thought all that privately, but I wonder I did not keep my own counsel. The idea was given up years ago. I have never forgotten it. It was that which brought me to this part of the country and out here to see you tonight. Come in, said Phillotson, And your cousin too. Okay, so he's not offended. He's fine. He's like, yeah, I suck. But maybe he sees in Jude some vestige of that dream and some... Uh, vestige of his own hopes for rising out of obscurity. And maybe in Jude, the stranger to him, he thinks that he can be in some ways uh, redeemed, right? Maybe Jude. Maybe Jude can follow the dream and fulfill the dream that he himself had failed in. And in doing so, maybe there is some hope after all. I mean, this is a lovely thought. I'm now getting encouraged. I'm now growing full of uh, hope because... I am a sap. And because when you raw dog the tea, I mean, the caffeine, you just, it's like you're mainlining caffeine. They entered the parlor of the schoolhouse where there was a lamp with a paper shade, which threw the light down on three or four books. Phillotson took it off so that they could see each other better. And the rays fell on the nervous little face and vivacious, dark eyes and hair of Sue on the earnest features of her cousin and on the schoolmaster's own mature face and figure, showing him to be a spare and thoughtful personage of five and 40. Oh, yeah. See, I wasn't wrong. I, I really wasn't. I was five years off. So he's basically living on borrowed time. I mean, he's 45 years old. He is an elder at this point, basically uh, wasted away to nothing, hunched back and ancient, using a walker in a decrepit state. He has not long for this world at that at that age, with a thin lipped, somewhat refined mouth, a slightly stooping habit, and a black frock coat, which, from continued frictions, shone a little at the shoulder blades, the middle of the back, and the elbows. It's a little worn, is what he's saying. You can just say, Tom, hey, Shakespeare, the coat's a little worn. It's a little frayed. You can just say it, Shakespeare. All right? Fucking Shakespeare. The old friendship was imperceptibly renewed. The schoolmaster speaking of his experiences and the cousins of theirs. He told them that he still thought of the church sometimes, and that though he could not enter it as he had intended to do in former years, he might enter it as a licentiate. Ugh, what does that mean? I mean, obviously some sort of layperson who gets to go to the church, but doesn't everybody get to go to the church? Licentiate. It's a. Uh, hmm. It's the holder of a certificate of competence to practice a certain profession, right? So, like a hairdresser. I mean, you get you know he's like a hairdresser. You, he, he, you go to school, you get a you get a little uh, you get a, like he's doing an HVAC. Hey Shakespeare, the guy can the guy can do HVAC. Shakespeare, but, you know, like a like a less than qualified dude who can go in and you know, kind of show folks around and say, yeah, this is this is where the big guy does the stuff, the Vespers and whatnot. <sighs> Meanwhile, he said. He was comfortable in his present position, though he was in want of a pupil teacher. They did not stay to supper, Sue so having to be indoors before it grew late, and the road was retraced to Christminster. Though they had talked nothing more than general subjects, Jude was surprised to find what a revelation of woman his cousin was to him. Yeah, exactly. They had talked nothing of general subjects, and yet he's in awe. Of course he is. We knew that. We know that he's going to become utterly entranced. She was so vibrant that everything she did seemed to have its source in feeling." "'An exciting thought would make her walk ahead so fast "'that he could hardly keep up with her, "'and her sensitiveness on some points was such "'that it might have been misread as vanity. "'It was with heart-sickness he perceived "'that while her sentiments towards him "'were those of the frankest friendliness only, "'he loved her more than before becoming acquainted with her, "'and the gloom of the walk home "'lay not in the night overhead.' but in the thought of her departure. Why must you leave Christminster, he said regretfully? How can you do otherwise than cling to a city in whose history such men as Newman, Pusey, Ward, Keble loom so large? Or Keble, I don't know. Yes, they do, though how large do they loom in the history of the world? What a funny reason for caring to stay. I should never have thought of it, she laughed. Well, I must go, she continued. Miss Fontover, one of the partners whom I serve, is offended with me, and I with her, and it is best to go. How did that happen? She broke some statuary of mine. Uh Uh-oh. She figured, oh no, she saw the naked man, the naked man, that Apollo in his uh, big dong schlong, and she probably smashed it. And she goes, oh, willfully? He goes, willfully? Yes, she found it in my room. And though it was my property, she threw it on the floor and stamped on it because it was not according to her taste and ground the arms and the head of one of the figures all to bits with her heel, a horrid thing. Too Catholic apostolic. Too Catholic apostolic for her, I suppose. No doubt she called them popish images and talked of the invocation of saints. No, no, she didn't do that. She saw the matter quite differently. Ah, then I am surprised. Yes, it was for quite some other reason that she didn't like my patron saints. Yeah, because they were porno. She caught you with some porno. And if you were really frank friendly with Jude, the way he has been with you, other than saying that he has been stalking her, she would just tell him, look, I'm into erotica. That's what she would say. I'm into erotica. I bought some Greek erotica and it was hot. And my uh, landlord found it and she was like, girl. And she was trying to save her from licentiousness. So I was led to retort upon her, and the end of it was that I resolved not to stay, but to get into an occupation in which I shall be more independent. Why don't you try teaching again? You once did, I heard. Oh, I never thought of resuming it, for I was getting on as an art designer." Do, let me ask Mr. Phillotson to let you try your hand in his school. If you like it and go to a training college and become a first-class certificated mistress, you get twice as large an income as any designer or church artist and twice as much freedom. Well, this is a fancy world, isn't it, in which teachers are paid commensurately with their talents and skills. What kind of fictionalized utopia is this Shakespeare, where teachers get paid a handsome salary and have freedom and are able to do things... What kind of fictionalized world is this? What kind of images are you putting into the heads of the young people? No wonder this book was banned. I never. Well, ask him. Now I must go in. Goodbye, dear Jude. I'm so glad we've met at last. We needn't quarrel because our parents did, need we? Jude did not like to let her quite... uh, Jude did not like to let her see quite how much he agreed with her and went his way to the remote street in which he had his lodging. Well, uh, I'm I'm going a little long here, but the chapter's almost over, so I'm just going to finish the chapter. To keep Sue Bridehead near him was now a desire which operated without regard of consequences. And the next evening, he again set out for Lumsden, fearing to trust to the persuasive effects of a note only. The schoolmaster was unprepared for such a proposal. What I rather wanted was a second year's transfer, as it is called, he said. Of course, your cousin would do personally, but she has had no experience. Oh, she has, has she? Does she really think of adopting teaching as a profession? Jude said she was disposed to do so, he thought, in his ingenious arguments on her natural fitness for assisting Mr. Phillotson, of which Jude knew nothing whatsoever so influenced the schoolmaster that he said he would engage her assuring jude as a friend that unless his cousin really meant to follow on in the same course and regarded this step as the first stage of an apprenticeship of which her training in a normal school would be the second stage her time would be wasted quite the salary being merely nominal the day after this visit phillotson received a letter from jude containing the information that he had again consulted his cousin, who took more and more warmly to the idea of tuition and that she had agreed to come. It did not occur for a moment to the schoolmaster and recluse that Jude's ardor in promoting the arrangement arose from any other feelings towards Sue than the instinct of cooperation common among members of the same family family. Well, I feel like I see a problem coming on. We have in one corner, Jude Fowley, the impressionable, young, excitable stonemason cousin of Sue Bridehead. And in the other corner, the lonely schoolmaster, Mr. Phillotson, in need of a pupil teacher. He does not know that Jude's feelings towards her are anything but the most familial. He does not know he wants to make them familiar. And if you were a 45-year-old lonely schoolmaster in a quiet, wooded town, and you found yourself with a pretty young pupil teacher who... Herself, we know, uh, has expansive dreams, and you have had your own expansive dreams shrunk almost to nothing. What could happen? What could possibly occur between those two that would be a conflict? I think you can well imagine. I can. Will that happen? I mean, Thomas Hardy is not one given to subtlety. That we have learned. Hey, Shakespeare, why aren't you given to subtlety? I I want to be happy for Jude. He's finally met his cousin. They get, they get along famously. And in trying to save her, it seems perhaps he has damned himself. How will all this play out? Jack-Jack is still curled up by my side. The cup of tea has grown cold. But my heart is beating ever faster as we progress through Jude the Obscure. I I am really on the edge of my seat here in the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library. Um, This could even lead to murder. Will it? Keep listening and join me next time for another utterly scintillating heart-pounding episode of Jude the Obscure. Until next time, I wish you adieu. Obscure is brought to you by Earwolf. For more information on Obscure, visit our show page at earwolf.com. And subscribe, won't you, in your favorite podcast app like Stitcher or Apple Podcasts so you do not miss one exciting episode of Jude the Obscure. Obscure is produced. By Jennifer Brennan, Mary Shimkin, and Robin Lynn, who also mixed and edited today's show with music composed by Craig Wedron. Special thanks to everyone at Earwolf, especially Chris Bannon, Colin Anderson, and the Earwolf engineer team of Brett Morris, Sam Kiefer, and Ryan Connor. If you would like information about sponsoring our show, email hello at midroll.com. From the wilds of Connecticut, I'm Michael Ian Black.